when I think about it, I've been preaching a long time. I preached my first sermon when I was 18 years old. That was a long time ago. 34 years if I did the math right. I've been speaking to many of you in this community since the mid-90s. Some of you may remember in another place far, far away. Look out sometimes and realize some of you I've been preaching to for a long time. It's amazing how much older you've gotten. (laughs) I've tried often to explore and explain the deep things of God with you. And now, on Trinity Sunday in 2019, I have a lot of things to say to you about the doctrine of the Trinity, the mystery of the Trinity, but, but you wouldn't be able to deal with it. You wouldn't be able to handle it. Someday, someday you'll be able to handle it, but not today. Sorry. Well, now, some of you might be a bit put off, okay. Some of you might be sitting there, what kind of arrogant, dirty stuff is that? But if you were listening to the gospel reading, that's what Jesus tells the disciples. He says, I've been talking to you for a long time. I've still got more things to tell you, but you can't deal with it. And then, but I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And then Jesus launches into this mishmash of stuff that goes all through John 16 and 17. I and my Father are one. You will be one with me as I am one with the Father. I will send the Spirit. The Father's going to see the Spirit, send the Spirit. The Spirit's going to give you what the Father gave me because what the Father gave me is mine and I'm going to give it to you because the Spirit's going to take it from me. And maybe the disciples are saying, you know, Jesus, I think you're right. I think we just can't deal with it today. And sorting out that mishmash of stuff is maybe the best example of what Jesus is getting at. He says it's going to take you some time to work out all the the, the bits of pieces that you have. But I'm going to send the Spirit, and the Spirit's going to clarify things for you. And maybe the doctrine of the Trinity, the best example of what Jesus is getting at. Because it took hundreds of years of work to develop it. As any Jehovah's Witness will tell you within 20 seconds of starting the conversation, the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible. That's supposed to come as some sort of a shock. The best response is that the word Trinity comes from a Latin word, Trinitas, and we wouldn't expect to find a Latin word in a Greek text like the New Testament. But I'll admit that at first glance of the New Testament, I'm saying that carefully first and glance, it looks like what the Jehovah's witnesses say about Jesus is right. It isn't. But that was the view of many in the early church. In fact, the majority of the early church for a long time, even though it was a wrong view. I'm not preaching against Jehovah's Witnesses, by the way. Um, I get approached by them quite often, especially in a college environment. And when, 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 they, when they approach me, I always thank them. I always say, thank you for caring about me. Thank you for caring about my soul. And I say, I, I, I disagree with you. And here's why, but thank you. Maybe we could learn something about that. Not about the Trinity, but about caring for people. Maybe about caring for people. Well, there's a misconception about the doctrine of the Trinity 
that um, a bunch of egghead intellectuals went up high in the ivory tower and came up with this crazy, crazy bunch of doctrine and then descended from the ivory tower and told the members in the church, you've got to believe this stuff. But that's not at all what happened. What happened is over and over again, the intellectuals went up the ivory tower, came up with an idea, came back down from the ivory tower and said, we've got it figured out. And the lay people in the pew said, nope, get back up that ivory tower until you get it right. There's a broad history of all the heresies in the early church of of trying to figure out how these things all tie together, this mishmash of, of father, son, and spirit, and what all this means for us. And, and, and the intellectuals would come down and say, well, we figured it out. Sometimes God is, is the Father, and sometimes God is the Son, and sometimes God's the Holy Spirit. We figured it out. And the lay people said, nope, that's not it. That doesn't match either Scripture or our experience. For hundreds of years, the lay people said, we read the Bible and we experience God. And we know God as Father, because Jesus told us to call God Father, And we understand God to be what the Jewish people call God. But then we also have met Jesus, and Jesus is God. And we feel this Holy Spirit moving amongst us when we gather, and that's God. So figure it out. And eventually, after a long time, they figured it out. The Trinity is not a logic problem. In fact, the Trinity is logic. It's not a logic problem because they very carefully worked with logical principles to make it logically coherent. And it describes who God is. God is three persons who share one existence and one essence. Three persons who share an existence are being in the creed. That's where 21st century Americans oftentimes get confused because in our ordinary conversation, we think of a being as an individual. Okay? But exist, ex- being, existence, God and three persons who share the same existence. And that existence is the foundation of our own existence. The Christian understanding of God is what Paul says God is, the one in whom I live and move and have my being the one in whom I have my existence. And this is why for Christians who understand the actual doctrine of God, the claims of atheism are literally nonsensical. Because if we understand who God is, the one in whom I live and move and have my being, by whom all things consist, to be told that existence itself does not exist just doesn't make sense. Occasionally, people will tell me, well, I'm I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God. And what I asked them, I didn't get this from myself, okay, I I borrowed it from N.T. Wright. He says, "Um, well, what kind of God, they say, well, I don't really believe in God. And N.T. Wright suggests asking, well, what kind of God don't you believe in? And that usually takes them back a bit. And they say, well, I, I don't believe that, you know, there's an old man sitting on a cloud And he just kind of goes around and says, okay, you're going to break your leg and you're going to go to hell and you're going to get a headache and you're going to get a car crash and you're going to win the lottery. I just don't believe that. And I say, we agree because I don't believe that God exists either. And there you've got common ground. You say, actually, I don't believe that either. 
I don't believe that either. But I do believe in the real God. And when you meet the real God, this usually involves three things. And we see them all in our reading from Isaiah. The psalm appointed for this morning was Psalm 29. And as we read through it, did you notice that God kind of shakes things up a lot? The voice of God stirs the water. It breaks trees. It makes mountains move. It makes the wilderness shake. And in the temple of the Lord, all are crying, glory. There's a bit of a play on words here. The Hebrew word for glory is kabod. And literally that word kabod in Hebrew means heaviness. Yeah, the Hebrew word for glory is literally heaviness. You may have heard the phrase, the weight of glory. That's because the idea behind the concept of glory in the Hebrew religion is heaviness, weight. And pretty quickly we see that this does not meet our expectations as 21st century Americans for what God should be. We want a lightweight God, portable, low profile, or what do they call it today? Slim profile, right? A user-friendly God, an unobtrusive God, a God with comfortable styling, aerodynamically sleek. But over and over again, Scripture reminds us that the real God does not meet our modern, streamlined design expectations. The real God is a glorious God, a heavy God, the kind of God who shakes things up. The nation of Israel lies along an earthquake fault line. It's in an earthquake zone. We don't think of that often because it's not a very active earthquake zone at at this point in time. But I I was reading about earthquakes recently, and and these huge tectonic plates, these big pieces of the earth's crust, they they come against each other, and they they become pressure, builds up until one or the other slips. And all it has to do... One of those plates all have, has to do is fall an eighth of an inch. It can fall an eighth of an inch and knock windows out of a building 50 miles away. What's so heavy that if it drops an eighth of an inch, it breaks out windows 50 miles away? If it falls a foot, it'll bring down buildings because it's heavy. When you throw in water, you have a, a rock into water, you have a water quake. Because when the heaviness hits the water, it shakes it. You can set the dinner table for dinner, and, and, and then when it's, everything's all nice and neat, take a big heavy book and drop it right in the middle of the table, and the, all the silverware shouts glory because the heaviness has shaken the dinner table. So it shouldn't surprise us that Scripture portrays people who've encountered the reality of the real God as being shaken up. Because when the reality of God enters our life, everything moves around. Our priorities shift. Everything's shaken because God is heavier than we are. Compared to the glory of God, the weight of God, the heaviness of God, everything else in life is lightweight. And that's what we see in Isaiah. Isaiah has a vision of God in the temple. And if you notice, right at the start of our reading, we're told that Isaiah has this vision of being in the temple in the year that King Isaiah died. 
That's not there as a coincidence. Isaiah was a king who was killed by God because Isaiah said, I'm the king, I can go anywhere I want to. And he went into the temple and God smote him dead. Isaiah is a member of the royal family. He's a nephew of King Isaiah. If there's any place a member of the royal family knows not to be in the year that Isaiah died, it's in the temple. He already knows what happened to his uncle. He knows he's unworthy to be in the temple. But he has a vision that he's in the temple. He sees God on the throne. The train of his robe fills the temple. Angelic beings are flying around shouting, Holy, holy, holy. And if you notice carefully, the temple is shaking under the weight of God's glory. And Isaiah says, Oh, well, I guess God does exist after all. No, he doesn't. In an instant, Isaiah moves from the concept of God to the reality of God. In just an instant, he moves from a concept of what God is to the reality of God. And what's the difference? The real God has glory. The concept of God, as beautiful and exquisite as it is, is light. It's flexible. The idea of God is something we can easily store away. We can fit it into our schedule. We can conform it to the pattern of our lives. But the reality of God is heavy. It shakes us up. Have you experienced the reality of God? You may say, not like Isaiah did. Well, guess what? No one else has experienced God the way Isaiah did. God meets us all in unique ways. God isn't a telemarketer with a sales script who just keeps calling around until he finds somebody. He knows who we are. It's interesting to look at. I recommend it if you have some time this afternoon. Just take a look at it. Compare the call of Isaiah to the call of Jeremiah. They're being called to the same job description, but they're radically different calls because these are two radically different people. Knowing God isn't a story contest. Who has the best story of coming to Jesus? Sometimes you get in a situation where people begin talking about how they came to know Jesus, and, and someone will, will start apologizing. They'll say, well, you know, I really wasn't all that bad a person. I don't really have all that great a story. I wasn't, really wasn't all that bad a person. I just, I just found Jesus, and he changed my life. And there's no need to apologize for that. God meets us as we are. But there are commonalities to meeting the real God. And three experiences are common as we look at Scripture. The first is a sense of beauty. The second is a sense of humility. And the third is a sense of forgiveness. First, there's a sense of beauty. In the Hebrew word, in the Hebrew language, uh, greatness is expressed by doubling the words. For example, the, the Hebrew phrase that um, is usually translated into English as purest gold. In Hebrew, literally, it says gold gold. What kind of gold is that? That's gold gold. Oh, wow, that's good stuff. Okay. Did you climb a mountain? I didn't just climb a mountain. I climbed a mountain mountain. That means a high mountain, a great mountain. Okay. I'm in a deep pit. When the psalmist says I'm in a deep pit, in Hebrew, it says I'm in a pit pit. There's only one construction in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, where we find tripling to express magnitude. You probably figured out what it is already. Holy, holy, holy Lord. 
God is not just holy, and he's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. The purest of holiness. And from Psalm 29 again, there's a beauty of holiness. Isaiah tries to capture that in the language about the train of the robe filling the temple. And when he's confronted with this vision of radical, beautiful holiness, Isaiah experiences radical humility. He says, woe is me. I'm lost. I'm ruined. I'm destroyed. I'm taken apart. I'm dismantled. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Have you noticed in Scripture, when people move from a concept of God to the reality of God, it's kind of interesting, they usually feel bad about themselves. Not a very good marketing gimmick. Job captures it like this almost exactly. Job says, when he finally comes face to face with God, he says, I've heard about you. That's the concept. I've heard about you, but now I see you. That's the reality of God. I've heard about you, but now I see you, and I repent of my sins in dust and ashes. Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm lost. When Peter realizes who Jesus is, he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Again, this doesn't fit in with what 21st century Americans expect from God. Meaning God should be a big boost of self-esteem. But this humility is necessary because we can't have the third reality, forgiveness and acceptance. We can't have radical forgiveness and acceptance without radical humility. There's no point in being forgiven unless you reach that point of humility and saying, I was wrong. Because if we say, well, I tried my best, nobody needs forgiveness for trying their best. Nobody needs forgiveness for being pretty good. Nobody needs forgiveness for being pretty good knowing the circumstances. Nobody needs forgiveness for being better than a lot of people. Nobody needs forgiveness for that. We need forgiveness and acceptance when we realize our utter and complete failures. And that's what Isaiah says. He says, woe is me. I'm ruined. And the angel grabs fire and heads towards him. Isaiah says, I'm a goner. An angel carrying fire. That's judgment. That's wrath. And instead, it's forgiveness. And Isaiah is cleaned and pardoned and accepted. And the next thing God says is, I need you. And Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. In a a few seconds, Isaiah feels as worthless as he can imagine feeling. And within a few seconds, he feels more loved than he's ever been loved. 
That's the gospel. That's the gospel. A story that starts off with a God of community, of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who open up that community to us. But we fell. But if we, we become humble and we understand and admit and confess our failures, our utter and complete failures, we realize we have a capacity for evil that we don't even want to think about, then we can know how to be loved more than we could ever imagine. In Jesus' name, amen.